Thank you, ladies, for ministering in music. As you study scripture, we should be a people of thanksgiving. A lot of praise and thanksgiving in scripture. And I encourage you not to limit that to thanksgiving time, but as a pattern of life. Let's pray together, then we'll interact with Mark chapter 9. Father, we do thank you. That you've given us scripture, you've given us Christ as the grace and strength to live it out, your Holy Spirit also to work in our life. May you give us an understanding of the portion of scripture we look at this morning, and then live in light of it. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Johnny. Husband of Sally and father to a 10-year-old daughter, a 13-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter, made an appointment with a surgeon. Dr. Hitchcock wondered why Johnny made an appointment, because he came without a referral. Johnny wasted no time in his reason for his appointment. He explained to Dr. Hitchcock that he wanted to have his hand amputated, his right hand. But, replied Dr. Dr. Hitchcock, your hand is in excellent condition. Johnny went on to explain that as a husband and as a father, he had a pattern of life of desiring to be great and the best, which resulted in failing to truly serve his family as well as serve his co-workers. Also, he saw his children following his teaching and his example of having a strong desire to be great and to be the best, which resulted in much fighting at home. As a visible reminder, he said, of my desire to be a servant, I want to be physically maimed so that I can have victory over causing my children to sin. He went on to explain that he was a believer in Jesus Christ and had been reading through Mark's gospel. What is your response to that made-up account of Johnny? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, reading together verses 42 through 50. Mark chapter 9, 42 through 50. Mark 9 and verse 42 And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter in life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be sodded with fire. Sod is good, but if it loses its sodiness, how can it be made sodi again? Have sod in yourself and be at peace with each other. 
you read through this passage, it may appear to be difficult, but we'll seek to discuss it in context. And if you do have a question, give you an opportunity for question, questions a little later on. But as we discuss it, just seek to follow Scripture. And keep in mind that the twelve seemed to understand what Jesus was saying. They didn't ask any questions. The Roman church, to whom Mark was probably written, probably understood it. So I think we can understand it today in its context and how it looks in life. Keep in mind the passage in which these verses appear are in the context of a theme of suffering and humility. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus had mentioned about his passion, his being rejected, his going to the cross, his coming from the dead. It is also in the context of greatness in the kingdom. Because Jesus just discussed his rejection, his going to the cross, his rising from the dead. And then the twelve get to arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus says, the one that wants to be the greatest needs to be last. And to be a servant. It is also in the context of the twelve apparently having a protective exclusive mindset of saying, let's stop this guy from casting out demons because he's not one of us. And Jesus says, leave him ago, or leave him alone. And then in verses 42 through 50, I think Jesus is talking about some of the requirements of discipleship. The passage we're discussing, verses 42 through 50, again, is in the context of humility and suffering, not greatness, not my group. The passage basically addresses that which is the opposite of humility. And servanthood, causing a little one to sin. That's the opposite of being a servant. The opposite of being last. The seriousness of causing a little one to sin, he says it's better to be thrown into the sea. It's better to cut one's hand off. It's better better to cut off the foot or pluck out, out one's eye. Than to be cast where the worm does not die. And he would say, do these things before causing the little one to sin. They're trying to drive home the importance of that. And then he goes on in verses 49 and 50, again, building upon servanthood and humility. It involves being salted with fire. Having salt in oneself and being at peace with each other. As you read the passage, Jesus continues what he has been saying as he sat down and talked to the disciples. As he took a little child, you know, he talked to them, you know, being willing to be servant. Then he discussed John's response when he said, this guy casting out a demon is not one of us. And Jesus said, leave him alone. And he's continuing that discussion. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to, who believes in me to sin, it would be better. And he goes on. Who, in the context, he says anyone. And if anyone, who is the anyone? 
It's a very general term. But I think as you look at the context, it definitely involves the twelve. It involves the twelve who wanted to be great and who wanted their little clique. I think in the context, it also communicates those who influence others. So you twelve, if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around your neck, and so on. Now so that we see kind of where Mark's going and think about our own lives, think about the following people as we discuss this passage as possibly being anyone today. Pastors, elders and deacons, Teachers, maybe in Sunday school, maybe Iwana, may impact teens, maybe musicians, or parents, or grandparents. If anyone causes these little ones to sin, as you look at the flow of the context, it seems to be the twelve and those who influence others. He says, and if anyone causes one of these little ones. Now, who are the little ones? The Greek word here is different than the one used for little children in verses 36 and 37. In verse 36, he took a little child and had him stand among them. Different Greek word. The definition here basically is one who is small, in dignity, low, or humble. It could be a little child, but again, it's a different word. Little ones in the context would be followers of Christ. Those that the twelve would influence. In light of the context, the last, those who are servant of all. Whom the twelve looked down on. Those outside of the twelve, because John said, you know, we saw this man driving out demons, you know, and he's not one of us. Shall we tell him to stop? Could be those giving a cup of cold water, just being a servant. Those considered insignificant by the greats, that is the twelve. If anyone causes these little ones. Now who are the little ones as it relates to the day? Let's think about little ones today as every an average believer in the local church. And I say the average believer in the local church. Those who come. Worship God and so on. Those in Sunday school that are taught. Maybe in Awana. Maybe in teens that are taught. Those taught by speakers and musicians. Children of all ages, being some little ones. Those that may be uninformed, that is, they're not mature, they haven't developed in Christ. And then those that may contribute to ministries today. But what does Jesus say? If anyone causes one of these little ones to sin... Causes to sin. 
the person acts or responds or teaches in such a manner that a little one, an immature one, an insignificant person is caused to sin. And the Greek word for sin here is not hamartia, which is the ordinary Greek word you know, that is used for sin. You go to Romans 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no none righteous. That's a hamartia, which is missing the very point of life. The Greek word here means to stumble or to offend or to entrap or to cause pain to someone or to affect them with uneasiness towards someone. Cause them to sin, to stumble, to offend, to kind of entrap them. In light of the context, the way you would entrap someone, cause someone to stumble, seems to be a desire to be great. To be better than. To have a passionate desire to want a higher role or a position. By the way, it's not wrong to advance and work and so on. The idea of a party spirit. We're better than. Oh, yeah. We here at Rory Brook, we're the best. Over there, they're not very good. Looking out for self. What was John doing? John was looking out for himself. When they argued about who was the greatest, they were looking out for themselves. In light of the context, the sin also may be involved luring people to your clique, teaching people, you know, be part of our little clique. To speak or imply ill of another person. No, leading others to speak ill of another person. To raise a question about another person, not in their present, which which influences others. If anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, Donald Hubbard, one-time pastor of Calvary Baptist Church of New York City, tells of seeing a high school girl excluded while he was leading a week-long camp. She was severely handicapped and literally had to drag herself from cabin to chapel. When she ate, she had to have a spoon strapped onto her wrist to eat. In the process, some of the food would fall on the table and on her lap. No one had time for her, so she went around by herself and ate alone. Dr. Hubbard says that this particular group of high schoolers, though they were from good churches, were an unusually sophisticated and hardened bunch. They could quote scripture, but little spiritual reality was evident in their lives. On the final night, as was the custom each year at camp, a great bonfire was built. And all gathered around to give a testimony and cast a stick into the fire. But no one responded except this handicapped girl. She picked up a stick, stumbled around the fire, looking each camper in the face. And when she had finished, 
she said in her slurred speech, I don't know why God made me this way, but he can have all of me there is. She wretched her body around and threw her stick into the fire. She refused to be a casualty of their sinful, superficial hearts. If anyone causes one of these little ones to sin. I want to give a couple examples that I see could be present in our culture today. Because sometimes we read scripture and we say, ah, is that what it means in context? But maybe we don't grasp how it fits in our culture. So a couple examples from 21st century America. You have an older, older believer sitting among a group of people, and there's a younger believer teaching. And the, on, the older believer picks up on a couple of things that just don't seem to be quite right, but they're not really way out in left field doctrinally. And in front of the, everyone, the older believer says, you know, you're wrong. The younger believer says, I will never teach again. Think an example of causing a little one to be offended, to stumble. Another example parents who speak ill of a teacher of government, of a leader, of a coach, in the presence of their children, and undermine God-ordained authority so that the children then begin to resist authority, being caused to stumble. Leaders speaking down about races or the poor or they're mentally challenged. And sowing among those that they lead, there's classes of people. And then followers develop the same mindset. I think parents can cause their children to stumble, to sin, that can offend them, when they are constantly talking to their children as they're growing up, you've got to get a good job, you've got to go to college, you've got to earn money, you must do this and this, while neglecting the development of character, the development of how to walk with God, how to be a godly man or a godly woman or a godly husband or a godly wife, and how to be a servant. And they grow up thinking, I have to do this. Nothing wrong with a good job or going to college. That's not my point. But it's the emphasis of one to the neglect of the other, causing children to sin. A dad and a mom who fight verbally or other ways. That's one way. Or they just don't talk a lot. But their communication and influence, and the kids pick up on that. And the reason they're fighting or they're withdrawing is because dad wants to be great, mom wants to be great, and neither one is willing to go to the other and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I repent, will you forgive me? 
and they offend their children. And their children grow up struggling with how to relate in life and how to relate to their mate or to children because mom and dad offended time after time because both wanted to be great. Those are just some examples of if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin. I think that's all in the context as you look where Jesus is going and what he is saying. Now notice the next phrase in the text. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better. I think he's trying to drive home the greatness, the seriousness of causing the little one to sin. He says it would be better, rather than causing the little one to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Now understand when Jesus says a large millstone, in that day he's coming from a culture where you would have a millstone that would be probably at least as big around as I'm illustrating here. And in the center of that millstone, or part of the millstone, would be a circular thing that dipped down in. Then you would have another large stone that would set in there, and an animal would turn that stone. So when Jesus says, it would be better for him to have thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck, the twelve identified with that, because that had been the fate of leaders in, in the insurrection under the early Zealot leader Judas, the Galilean, whom the Romans drowned in a lake by tying, tying a millstone around his neck. One Roman historian also mentions a graphic case having similar punishment. Can you imagine the horror of having a millstone rope around your neck, tied to the millstone, and you're dropped into the sea. Jesus says, anyone causes one of these little ones to sin who believes in me, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Pretty strong statement. Very strong Statement. Trying to drive home again, offending a little one, causing them to stumble, is not a good thing. Be better. He goes on to drive home his point. And I think here he is coming to the point of we have to deal with ourselves. You know, the one who is teaching, the one who is leading. If your hand causes you to sin, If your hand causes you to offend, offend, to pain others, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where their fire never goes out. You say, Jesus is recommending hacking off part of your body, you know, your hand one time and your foot another time, gouge out your eye. 
I think in light of the context, he is driving home the seriousness of causing the little one to sin by saying, if your hand causes you to sin, it's better to enter life main than with two hands. And it's kind of setting a pattern of life. He goes on, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Again, I think driving home, you know, this is serious stuff that he's talking about. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. See, please understand that Jesus in early Christianity did not buy into the Greek culture which separated the body from the immaterial world. The Gospels repeatedly emphasize and affirm the body, sexual morality, financial integrity, the treatment of others, as well as spiritual reality. So I think he's trying to drive home a point. He's not necessarily saying, hey, go to the doctor like I gave the example of Johnny and have your hand cut off or your foot. But he's making a case for the seriousness of causing the little one to sin. Sin, apparently, when it causes others to sin, to stumble, to fall, as well as one's own sin, is very serious. It seems, in light of the context, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, that we must address sin as the leaders and the teachers and the parents and the grandparents in our own life because we influence others. And it affects our saudiness as we'll discuss next week, Lord willing. Now I want to touch a little bit on, I'm lost here, Jared, what do I do? <laughs> Just says no connection available. <clears throat> but want to address a little what he says. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life main than to go <clears throat> with two hands into hell where the foot or the fire never dies. And he says the same thing about a foot. And then in verse 48 he says, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Saying some very strong, powerful things here. The Greek word for hell in this context, in verses 43 45 and 47 is Gehenna, from which the High Nome Valley, you know, where it comes from, it's a steep ravine south of, southeast of Jerusalem where humans, human sacrifice had taken place under Ahaz and Manasseh, according to 2 Kings chapter 16. That's where Gehenna derived its name. Outside of Jerusalem, a valley, a steep ravine where human sacrifices had been practiced in the Old Testament. The detestable sacrifice of human 
the detestable practice, I'm sorry, of human sacrifice was later abolished by King Josiah, 2 Kings 23, who desecrated this valley by making it a garbage dump. To go into hell, to go into Gehenna, where the fire is never quenched, became a symbol of divine wrath and punishment in Judaism and Christianity or the darkness, pain, and torment resulting from it. When he says in verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, is a quote from Isaiah 66, 24. Now when the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, it's important to go back to the Old Testament and consider the context of the Old Testament. And see what is being said there. If you go back to Isaiah 66, you'll find that in Isaiah 66, and, or I'm sorry, 65 and 66, there's two chapters there of promise and salvation. Israel has been told repeatedly in Isaiah that they're going to be judged. But in Isaiah 65 and 66, promise, salvation. But chapter 66 closes with a forceful warning of the consequences of rebellion against God. Israel had rebelled. And he mentions their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched in Isaiah 66, 24. So how does that tie in with what is being said in Mark 9? Causing a little one to sin to stumble is equated to the deep rebellion of Judah against the Lord. Judah rebelled. Strong rebellion. They went into captivity and so on. There seems to be an equating with what Judah did with causing a little one to sin. The quote from Isaiah serves as the strongest possible warning against failing to fulfill one's call to discipleship by causing a little one to sin, to stumble by seeking to be great, unwilling to serve, displaying a party spirit, failing to help the least. It seems like one's destiny is influenced by causing the little one to sin, to stumble. I don't think Jesus is saying that everyone who causes a little one to sin will go to hell. His point is, don't worry about it, Jar. it'll be okay. His point is that it would be better for him to go there than to cause one to sin. He seems to be driving home the point. It's very, very serious. Now, I would pose a question, a question that I'm not looking for an answer. What does Mark 9, 42 through 49, I'm sorry, 50, say about parents, religious leaders, teachers who hurt children, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, 
and just a lack of how to walk with God. I'm not looking for an answer, but to think. Seek to be wise and discerning. Check out leaders, parents, and teachers. Are they leading, teaching others correctly? We'll pick up with verses 49 and 50 next week, but they tie in with what is being said in verses 42 through 48. And tonight we'll look at some parallel passages and some more examples. I would pose a question as we're about to close. How has the Lord spoken to you? I have wrestled with this passage for months. Not that I studied it every day, but I'd study it some, and then I'd come away from it and say, I'm just not ready to teach it. I want to make sure I understand it correctly. And then I'd come back to it, and this week was really a hard week for me as I thought about teaching this. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a pastor. I don't want to cause anyone to stumble. But think about the people that we discussed before, who it might be applicable to today. Just stop and ponder and say, how is the Lord speaking to me? How will you respond? Any questions in light of what we have discussed this morning? Just try, if you don't grasp the context of the passage or would like clarification on something before we close. Don't be afraid to read and reread and reread the passage just to say, Lord, I'll make sure I understand it. And then I want to live it out. I don't do this real often. If you're here this morning, the Lord has really challenged your heart and you responded and said, Lord, I want to respond. And you're willing to share that with others and just stand, pause a moment, and then be seated. We invite you to stand and say, you know, the Lord really spoke to me. Whatever way it may have been, you don't have to explain it. But I want to be willing to share with others in the body that the Lord spoke to me. And I want to be responsive. Anyone want to respond? Again, no obligation, but sometimes I think it's good to publicly share, you know. God did minister to me and speak to me. Let's pray together. Father,
as we interact with this passage, I have to come back to the fact that I'm so grateful in Christ. I have life. In Christ, we as a body have life. So grateful that in Christ, we have forgiveness. We have redemption. I think there be many of us here this morning as we read this passage, we would say there have been points in time where I've caused a little one who believes in Christ to sin, to stumble, to offend. We desire for you to work in our life, Father, with Christ as our life, and we want to be sensitive to your spirit. May we understand this passage in context and then live in light of it. We don't want our focus to be on us. And always being fearful of causing the little one to stumble, to sin. But we want to have our focus on Christ, being sensitive to him. So that we're sensitive to others. And we are developing in a growing way a servant's heart. We're developing in a growing way a willingness to minister to others. A willingness to be last. I pray to you, Father, you would help us to understand that Jesus is speaking to religious people here. He's speaking to the twelve, and the primary application, I think, needs to be limited to that. And Leaders and parents and teachers and so on. Work in our lives, Father, that we may become more and more like Christ. For it's in his name I pray, amen.